Part Three of The Machine That Saved the World by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. He surveyed his stock. From a back corner he brought out a small machine with an especially meditative tempo in its standby lamp flicker. The tempo accelerated a little when he put it on a workbench. They got batteries to stay activated with, he observed, and only need real juice when they're working. This here's a playback recorder they had over in recreation. Some guys trained it to switch frequencies, speed up and slow down stuff. They laughed themselves sick. There used to be a tough guy over there, a staff sergeant he was, that gave lectures on military morals in a deep bass voice. He was proud of that bull voice of his. He used it frequently. So they taped him, and Al here, the name plainly referred to the machine, used to play it back switched up so he sounded like a squeaky girl. That poor guy. He liked to bust a blood vessel when he heard himself speaking soprano. He raised hell, and they sent Al here to be rehabilitated. But I switched another machine for him and sent it back instead. Of course, Al don't know what he's doing, but— He brought over another device, slightly larger and with a screen. Somebody had a bright notion with this one, too, he said. They figured they'd scramble pictures for secret transmission, like they scramble voice. But they found they had to have team-trained sets to work, and they weren't interchangeable. They sent Gus here to be activated and trained again. I kind of hate to do that. Sometimes you've got to deactivate a machine, but it's like shooting a dog somebody's taught to steal eggs who don't know it's wrong. He bolted the two instruments together. He made connections with flexible cables and tucked the cables out of sight. He plugged in for power and began to make adjustments. The small scientist asked curiously, "'What are you preparing, Sergeant?' "'These two'll unscramble that broadcast,' said Sergeant Bellews with tranquil confidence. "'Al's learned how to make a tape and switch frequencies expert. Gus here, he's an unscrambler that can make any kind of scanning pattern. Together they'll have a party doing what they're specially trained for. We'll hook them to Betsy's training terminals.' He regarded the two machines warmly. Connected now, their standby lights flickering at a new tempo, they synchronized and broke synchrony and went back into elaborate, not-quite-resolvable patterns, which were somehow increasingly integrated as seconds went by. "'Those lights look kind of nice, don't they?' asked the sergeant admiringly. "'Makes you think of a couple of dogs getting acquainted when they're going out on a job of hunting or something.' But Leaky said abruptly in amazement, "'But, Sergeant, in the Pentagon it takes days to unscramble a received broadcast such as Betsy receives. It requires experts.' <laughs> said Sergeant Bellews. He picked up the two machines. "'Don't get me started about the kind of guys that wrangle headquarter company jobs. They got a special talent for falling soft. But they haven't necessarily got anything else.' Leaky followed Sergeant Bellows as the sergeant picked up his new combination of devices and headed out of the rehab shop. Outside in the sunshine there were roarings to be heard. Leaky looked up. A formation of jets swam into view against the sky. A tiny speck, 
trailing a monstrous plume of smoke, shot upward from the jet field. The formation tightened. The ascending jet jiggled as if in pure exuberance as it swooped upward, but the jiggle was beautifully designed to throw standard automatic gun sights off. A plane peeled off from the formation and dived at the ascending ship. There was a curious alteration in the thunder of motors. The rate of rise of the climbing jet dwindled almost to zero. Sparks shot out before it. They made a cone the diving ship could not avoid. It sped through them and then went as if disappointedly to a lower level. It stood by to watch the rest of the dogfight. Nice said Sergeant Bellews appreciatively. That's a Mahon jet all by itself, training against regular ships. They have to let it shoot star bullets in training, or it'd get hot and bothered in a real fight when its guns went off. The lower jet streaked skyward once more. Sparks sped from the formation. They flared through emptiness where the Mahon jet had been, but now was not. It scuttled abruptly to one side as concerted streams of sparks converged. They missed. It darted into zestful, exuberant maneuverings, remarkably like a dog dashing madly here and there in pure high spirits. The formation of planes attacked it resolutely. Suddenly the lone jet plunged into the midst of the formation. There were coruscations of little shooting stars, and one, two, three planes disgustedly descended to lower levels as out of action. Then the single ship shot upward, seemed eagerly to shake itself, plunged back, and the last ships tried wildly to escape, but each in turn was technically shot down. The Mahone jet headed back for its own tiny airfield. Somehow it looked as if had it been a dog, it would be wagging its tail and panting happily. "'That one ship,' said Leaky blankly, "'it defeated the rest?' "'It's got a lot of experience,' said the sergeant. "'You can't beat experience.' He led the way into communications center, in the room where Betsy stood, Howell and Graves had been drawing diagrams at each other to the point of obstinacy. "'But don't you see?' insisted Howell angrily. There can be no source other than a future time. We can't send short waves through three-dimensional space to a given spot and not have them interceptable between. Anyhow, the compubs wouldn't work it this way. They wouldn't put us on guard, and an extraterrestrial wouldn't pretend to be human if he honestly wanted to warn us of danger. He'd tell us the truth. Physically and logically, it's impossible for it to be anything but what it claims to be. Graves said doggedly, but a broadcast originating in the future is impossible. Nothing, snapped Howell, that a man can imagine is impossible. Then imagine for me, said Graves, that in 2180 they read in the history books about a terrible danger to the human race back in 1972, which was averted by a warning they sent us. Then from their history books, which we wrote for them, they learn how to make a transmitter to broadcast back to us. Then they tell us how to make a transmitter to broadcast ahead to them. They don't invent the transmitter. We tell them how to make it, via a history book. We don't invent it. They tell us from the history book. Now imagine for me how that transmitter got invented. 
You're quibbling, snapped Howell. You're refusing to face a fact because you can't explain it. I say face the fact and then ask for an explanation. Why not ask them, said Graves, how to make a round square or a five-sided triangle? Sergeant Bellews pushed to a spot near Betsy. He put down his now-linked Mahone machines and began to move away some of the recording apparatus focused on Betsy. Hold on there, said Howell in alarm. Those are recorders. We'll let them record direct, said the sergeant. Leakey spoke feverishly in support of Bellews, but what he said was in effect a still marveling description of the possibilities of Mahone-modified machines. They were, he said with ardent enthusiasm, the next step in the historic process by which successively greater portions of the cosmos enter into a symbiotic relationship with man. Domestic animals entered into such a partnership eons ago. Certain plants, wheat and the like, even became unable to exist without human attention, and machines were wrought by man and for a long time served him reluctantly. Pre-Mahone machines were tamed, not domestic. They wore themselves out and destroyed themselves by accidents. But now there were machines which could enter into a truly symbiotic relationship with humanity. What? demanded Howell. What in hell are you talking about? Leakey checked himself. He smiled abashedly. I think, he said humbly, that I speak of the high destiny of mankind. But the part that applies at the moment is that Sergeant Bellows must not be interfered with. He turned and ardently assisted Sergeant Bellows in making room for the just-brought devices. Sergeant Bellows led flexible cables from them to Betsy. He inserted their leads in her training terminals. He made adjustments within. It became notable that Betsy's standby light took up new tempos in its wavering. There were elaborate interweavings of rate and degree of brightening among the lights of all three instruments. There was no possible way to explain the fact, but a feeling of pleasure, of zestful stirring, was somehow expressed by the three machines which had been linked together into a cooperating group. Sergeant Bellews eased himself into a chair. Now everything's set, he observed contentedly. Remember, I ain't seen any of these broadcasts unscrambled. I don't know what it's all about. But we got three Mahone machines set up now to work on the next crazy broadcast that comes in. There's Betsy and these two others. And all machines work according to the golden rule. But Mahone machines, they are honey babies. They'll bust themselves trying to do what you ask them. And I ask these babies for plenty. Only not enough to hurt them. Let's see what they turn out. He pulled a pipe and tobacco from his pocket. He filled the pipe. He squeezed the side of the bowl and puffed as the tobacco glowed. He relaxed, underneath the wall sign which sternly forbade smoking by all military personnel within these premises. It was nearly three hours, but it could have been hundreds, before Betsy's screen lighted abruptly. The broadcast came in, a new transmission. The picture pattern on Betsy's screen was obviously not the same as other broadcasts from nowhere. The chirps and peepings and the rumbling deep sounds were not repetitions of earlier noise sequences. It should have taken many days of finicky work by technicians at the Pentagon before the originally broadcast picture could be seen and the sound interpreted. But a playback recorder named Al 
and a picture unscrambler named Gus were in close-circuit relationship with Betsy. She received the broadcast, and they unscrambled the sound and vision parts of it immediately. The translated broadcast, as Gus and Al presented it, was calculated to put the high brass of the defense forces into a frenzied tizzy. The anguished consternation of previous occasions would seem like very calm contemplation by comparison. The high brass of the armed forces should grow dizzy. Top echelon civilian officials should tend to talk incoherently to themselves, and scientific consultants, biologists in particular, ought to feel their heads spinning like tops. The point was that the broadcast had to be taken seriously, because it came from nowhere. There was no faintest indication of any signal outside of Betsy's sedately gray-painted case. But Betsy was not making it up. She couldn't. There was a technology involved which required the most earnest consideration of the message carried by it. And this broadcast explained the danger from which the alleged future wished to rescue its alleged past. A brisk, completely deracialized broadcaster appeared on Gus's screen. In clipped, oddly stressed but completely intelligible phrases, he explained that he recognized the paradox his communication represented. Even before 1972, he observed, there had been argument about what would happen if a man could travel in time and happen to go back to an earlier age and kill his grandfather. This communication was an inversion of that paradox. The world of 2180 wished to communicate back in time and save the lives of its great-great-great-grandparents so that it, the world of 2180, would be born. Without this warning and the information to be given, at least half the human race of 1972 was doomed. In late 1971 there had been a mutation of a minor strain of Staphylococcus somewhere in the Andes. The new mutation thrived and flourished. With the swift transportation of the period, it had spread practically all over the world unnoticed because it produced no symptoms of disease. Half the members of the human race were carriers of the harmless mutated Staphylococcus now, but it was about to mutate again in accordance with Gordon's law, the reference had no meaning in 1972, and the new mutation would be lethal. In effect, one human being in two carried in his body a semi-virus organization which he continually spread, and which very shortly would become deadly. Half the human race was bound to die unless it was instructed as to how to cope with it, unless, unless the world of 2180 told its ancestors what to do about it. That was the proposal. Two-way communication was necessary for the purpose, because there would be questions to be answered, obscure points to be clarified, numerical values to be checked to the highest possible degree of accuracy. Therefore, here were diagrams of the transmitter needed to communicate with future time. Here were enlarged diagrams of individual parts. The enigmatic parts of the drawing produced a wave-type unknown in 1972, but a special type of wave was needed to travel beyond the three dimensions of ordinary space into the fourth dimension, which was time. This wave-type produced unpredictable surges of power in the transmitter wherefore at least six transmitters should be built and linked together 
so that if one ceased operation another would instantly take up the task. The broadcast ended abruptly. Betsy's screen went blank. The colonel was notified. A courier took tapes to Washington by high-speed jet. Life in Research Establishment 83 went on sedately. The barracks and the married quarters and the residences of the officers were equipped with Mahone-modified machines which laundered diapers perfectly, and with dial telephones which always rang right numbers, and there were police-up machines which took perfect care of lawns, and television receivers tuned themselves to the customary channels for different hours with astonishing ease. Even jet planes equipped with Mahone units almost landed themselves, and almost flew themselves about the sky in simulated combat with something very close to zest. But the atmosphere in the room in communications was tense. I think, said Howell with his lips compressed, that this answers all your objections, Graves. Motive— No, said Leakey painfully, it does not answer mine. My objection is that I do not believe it. Huh, said Sergeant Bellews scornfully. Of course you don't believe it. It's phony, clear through. Leakey looked at him hopefully. You noticed something that we missed, Sergeant? Hell yes, said Sergeant Bellews. That transmitter diagram don't have a Mahone unit in it. Is that remarkable? demanded Howell. Remarkably dumb, said the Sergeant. They'd ought to know. The tall young lieutenant, who earlier had fetched Sergeant Bellews to communications, now appeared again. He gracefully entered the room where Betsy waited for more broadcast matter. Her standby light flickered with something close to animation, and the similar yellow bulbs on Al and Gus responded in kind. The tall young lieutenant said politely, I am sorry, but pending orders from the Pentagon, the Colonel has ordered this room vacated. Only automatic recorders will be allowed here, and all records they produce will be sent to Washington without examination. It seems that no one on this post has the necessary clearance for this type of material." Leakey blinked. Graves sputtered. But, damn it, do you mean we can work out a way to receive a broadcast and not be qualified to see it? There's a common-sense view, said Sergeant Bellews oracularly and a crazy view, and there's what the Pentagon says, which ain't either. He stood up. I see where I go back to my shop and finish rehabilitating the Colonel's vacuum cleaner. You gentlemen care to join me? Howell said indignantly, This is ridiculous. This is absurd. Uh-huh, said Sergeant Bellows benignly. This is the armed forces. There'll be an order making some sort of sense come along later. Meanwhile, I can brief you guys on Mahone machines, so you'll be ready to start up again with better information when a clearance order does come through. And I got some beer in my quarters behind the rehab shop. Come along with me." He led the way out of the room. The young lieutenant paused to close the door firmly behind him and to lock it. A bored private with sidearms took post before it. The lieutenant was a very conscientious young man but he did not interfere with the parade to Sergeant Bellew's quarters. The young lieutenant was very military, and the ways of civilians were not his concern. If eminent scientists chose to go to Sergeant Bellew's quarters instead of the officers' club to which their assimilated rank entitled them, it was strictly their affair. End of Part 3